Hey, here's my conversation with Dave Sedia. Dave is a software developer and blogger, and he's one of my favorite teachers. He's the author of a book and a handful of courses on React, and he also created ReCut, a native app to make screencast editing faster. In this episode, Dave and I talk all about React. We talk about learning React and teaching React, what React is and how it works. And we also go over different topics such as React hooks, custom hooks, and state management libraries. Hope you enjoy the episode. Dave, for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Addison. This, this is fun. It's cool to get to chat. So we're talking about React. Um, I'd love to start just by asking you, like, how did you first get interested in React? Yeah, so I, um, I first started playing with React around, I think it was 2016. Um, and I was doing AngularJS, like Angular 1 at the time at my, at my day job. And I had started writing a blog about Angular um, in like 2015 or something. So I was about a year into blogging and Angular 2 was on the horizon. And so like there was like an alpha that came out or something and I played around with it a bit and I just didn't didn't like it at all. <laughs> like the direction they were going was like not, not for me. And um, so it seemed like it was going to be such a big difference from Angular 1 that I looked at um, it's like, maybe I'll look at React. Like that seems also popular. So I tried out React and then it was like, this is great. It felt so much, so much simpler and lighter than both Angular 2, but also, also the Angular 1 stuff I was doing day to day. And I like rewrote some components in, in, uh, into React and um, kind of went from there. It's like, hey, this seems like super fast and super productive. Um, so you have a course called Pure React. Can you talk about like why it was named Pure React? Yeah, so so for context, it started as a book um, with the same name back in 2016. Was like the first product I ever released, and um, it really I, I named it that because it kind of came out of the idea for the book. Really came out of the struggles that I saw people having, where they'd be um, this was like pre-create React app days, so people would be messing with like Webpack and Redux and getting all these things together and configured. And there are all these boilerplate projects. There were like hundreds of them. And like, um, it was just, just kind of a nightmare. And people were struggling a lot with like getting started, just like getting the environment going and then also trying to learn all this stuff at the same time. And so I thought like the way I, the way I had kind of played around with it, it was like React seems really cool by itself and it can do some cool stuff by itself. It's like, maybe I'll, I'll do kind of pure React, like it's just that, and we'll just learn this one thing. Um, and kind of the idea being not so much that you would only ever use React, but that, you know, React is is the starting point. Like you learn just React by itself, kind of in isolation, and then bolt on stuff as you need it. Yeah, I feel like I had that same experience when I started um, learning React, where you have to learn all of these other things. It's really overwhelming. So you learn about um, like Babel or Webpack um, and all of these different things that aren't really React itself, but yeah. you start to feel like pretty overwhelmed just trying to set up a basic project before you've even touched any actual React. Yeah, yeah. And like this, so it was it was before Create React app and I had found some other, there was some other tool that, that would spin up a project with like minimal build tooling and stuff. And so that was kind of the, the thing I based the book around actually. And then like the week before I was going to release the book, create react app came out and I was like, Oh no, <laughs> like this is the official one now. Like I have to rewrite everything. So I rewent, I went through and like changed all the examples. And <laughs> I don't even know what it was like before. Cause I, right when I was kind of like interning and getting into coding, create react app was already there. 
Um, and so I can't really imagine what it was like before it, like, it's just so easy to spin up a new project. (laughs) So much easier, so much easier now. Um, I want to ask you more about the course Pure React and uh, a little bit more about like who it's for exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it's like today's version of Pure React is like the book plus the video course. And it's a lot bigger than just the book that I started with. Um, and I've always kind of thought of it as, as a course for developers who know, like who know JS pretty well already and have done some HTML and CSS and like want to kind of stack React onto those existing skills. Um, but I've also heard from a lot of like earlier, you know, beginners go through it and get a lot of value out of it too. Um, but that was kind of the headspace I was in when I was creating it. It was like going from Angular to React. It was like, okay, well, you know, build on existing skills kind of thing. Um, but uh, but it's turned out to be valuable for like a, a wider range of folks really. Yeah, that makes sense. So it can be for more of beginners, but then also people who are pretty solid on JavaScript, but they want to expand their React skills more. Yeah, and I've, I've even had some people who, who've reached out and said like, this course was really helpful or the book was really helpful um, as someone who had like been using React professionally for a while and just to kind of like fill in all the holes or something. And I've always thought that was interesting. Like you've been using this for a couple of years. Like this this feels like a very beginner course book to me, but I think it's it's helpful to kind of solidify all the like all the basics. So I want to talk more about React. I mean, for someone who is listening, could you talk about like what React is maybe for someone who doesn't know yet? Yeah. So um, I guess at the most basic level, it's a it's a JavaScript framework for building web applications. Um, I think the sweet spot with React is really interactive apps, um, apps with a lot of interactivity. But you you it can do static sites just as well, um, things like blogs and stuff. Uh, there's kind of like frameworks that wrap React. So there's like frameworks on frameworks now, but um, like things like Next.js and Gatsby that that sort of make it more suited towards the static site generation case and stuff. But um, but I think that kind of the sweet spot is the, is the interactivity. And um, so it's kind of, I think it came about as an alternative to um, other frameworks at the time. So I think it was released in 2013 or something, 13 or 14, the first version. And uh, at the time it was like, the alternatives were like cobbling stuff together with jQuery and then AngularJS was like sort of starting to be a framework. Um, it was like its own thing. And React was kind of a more minimal version of that. Yeah, I think that's kind of a, I, I think that's sort of a long-winded way of saying it's it's a web development framework. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What do you think is like the future of React? Like, do you see it just continuing to gain popularity or another framework kind of overtaking it? I feel like it's here for a while now. I think it's gotten to a large enough point where it's kind of just the default choice, I think for a lot of, for a lot of people, because there's just so many developers that, that have those skills. So it's easy to hire for those developers. And there's just a ton of resources out there because of, because of the popularity. So it's sort of this feedback loop, I think where, where it's, it's here to stay for a good long while. Yeah, that's so true. And I feel like the more popular it becomes, the more developers want to move to React instead of Angular and things like that, just because the more in demand it gets, the more you want to focus on it, obviously. Yeah, right. You've written about how developers can learn to think in React. Um, And for those who are new to React or still find it kind of confusing, what do you think are some ways that we can start like learning to think in React? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think it's helpful like when learning a thing just in general, I guess, to, to build lots of little small projects to kind of get an intuition for how the thing works. 
um, kind of just like following your curiosity for like building small things. And um, I think really crucially trying to break things. So like trying to make apps and then, and then causing errors and figuring out like where the kind of where the edges are. Um, so with React, that might be, you know, trying to return weird stuff with your JSX or something like try stuff that you haven't seen in examples and does it work? And if it fails, how does it fail? And why do you think it fails? And can you look up why? And those things, I think, sort of take away some of the magic and they help give you this intuition for how the thing actually works, which which I always feel is, is helpful. I always like knowing how things kind of work under the hood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So kind of looking at an error and not just trying to fix it, the what, but thinking about like, why did this error happen and how can it help me figure out more of how React works? Yeah, so some of that. And I think um, the, the small projects are kind of, I think the small projects help versus the larger ones. So I, I know, I think a lot of people try to jump in and do like one big app that touches everything. So they'll, you know, build like an e-commerce store that has like a backend and React and API calls and databases and everything. And it's just, it's too much at once, I think. Like, unless you already know all those pieces and you're just cobbling them together, um, you, you end up learning like a ton of like small bits of a lot of things. And it's really hard to keep straight in your head, like which bits belong where and how everything connects together. And especially in the React side where it can be really easy to just not be sure of like, where does the React syntax end and the JavaScript begin? And like, there's this funny mix. It's like, it's mostly JavaScript actually, but it really kind of seems like it's all special React stuff. Um, so I think that's another advantage of keeping, kind of keeping the project small in the beginning, kind of um, maybe, you know, small and, and easier than you, you think they need to be or something before, kind of get your confidence going before, um, before you build up something bigger. I want to talk more about how, um... There are, there's parts of JavaScript that are in React. Um, and then I think beginners get kind of confused on like what's React and what's JavaScript. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, you have this awesome section in your course, um, Modern JS for React, where you kind of go over the essential syntax of modern JavaScript that you need to know to work with React. Can you talk about like what are some of the essential JavaScript essentials, I guess, that you need to know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, to kind of to kind of reiterate, I guess it's like a lot of people think that React has its own special syntax, and it's sort of true. Like it has the JSX stuff is all React, right? Um, but everything else is pretty much JavaScript, including like inside the JSX. Once you open some curly braces, like that stuff is all JavaScript. And um, so the on the JavaScript side of thing, I think learning just kind of stepping back and and learning that syntax up front so that you kind of know what you're getting into when you're trying to write components and stuff. And also like when things go wrong, what to Google for. So you're not Googling for like how to map in React when it's like, oh, map is a JavaScript function. Um, it helps just to know kind of like what umbrella things fit under. So I think I think of um, in terms of like specifics to learn, it's stuff like arrow functions, um, destructuring, like destructuring arrays, like you'd see in use state where it pulls out two elements from the state, from the use state return, uh, destructuring objects where you see in like every function component where it takes props and you've got the curly braces, like that's a JavaScript thing. That's not a React thing. Um, the functional programming type stuff like map and filter and reduce is all like you use that pretty often in React code, but like that's all JavaScript. Um, and in terms of concepts, like immutability is really important. 
So React puts a heavy focus on like not modifying variables and stuff inside your components because a component render is supposed to be entirely um, entirely pure. Like you're not supposed to have any side effects inside your render, so that React can call it multiple times and like nothing, which like you get the same result every time. Um, and you get that by being careful about immutability. So stuff like the the spread operator, like dot 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 to spread out arrays, um, to copy arrays or objects is, um, is also like a JavaScript feature that is useful to know about. Can you talk a little bit more on like immutability and like, why is it important? Yeah. Um, so kind of when it comes down to it, React, uh, well, certain optimizations with React will, you know, th there are some optimizations that it does to avoid re-rendering when it doesn't need to. And so one of those things is like, if you call set state with, say your state is an array, um, mm -hmm. and you call set state with a new array after doing something like array.push or whatever, um, you've calling push on an array is gonna modify the internals of the array. Like it will have one more element in it, but the wrapping array, like the actual array object is the same as it was before. So React will look at that and say, oh, nothing changed. Like it's the same array, I'm not gonna re-render. So it'll like sort of avoid doing this extra work, but um, but only like it doesn't really know that you've changed the things it, because it's it's slow to look inside objects and see, look at all their properties and see what's changed. So it makes the simplifying assumption that like if the thing if the object itself hasn't changed, then nothing inside has changed. Um, so that's why it's important to do do things in like an, an immutable way and immutable way where you create a new array and kind of copy in all the old stuff and add a new thing at the end or make a new object, copy in all the properties, add new ones. Um, right, so React yeah. will see any of these objects or arrays that changed and then it will re-render, which is great because something changes, um, something in your state changes and then your view will change, your component will change, like maybe your button or something like that. Um, but then the, the issue is that if React looks at the object and it sees no difference, then it's not going to re-render. Um, so yeah. it's kind of solving that, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you can get into kind of a weird state where sometimes you'll, I think I have an example in this, in the course where like you push on an array without doing the immutable thing. And you'll see that like the component, just your page just seems frozen until you change something else. And then, so you get this weird, like uh, things don't change when you think they should uh, problem. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so immutability stuff is kind of tricky. I have a blog post on that actually that goes into like kind of all the immutability operations that are important and objects and arrays and stuff. We can link that. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely link to it. Yeah. I feel like it's almost um, not intuitive. I would almost think that, you know, new objects or new arrays instead of just modifying them would be um, less good in a way. Yeah. You'd kind of think like it's slower or something like you're making a yeah. new thing and it's kind of wasteful. Um, the, the uh, like the JavaScript interpreter, like I guess V8, if it's Chrome, um, is, uh, is, is pretty well optimized to handle that kind of stuff. Okay, makes sense. Um, I wanna move on to talking about React hooks. You've written some really good posts about hooks um, and your course goes over them too. And especially they were really helpful for me when I started switching to React hooks and I was kind of like, what are these things? Um, can you talk a little bit about like what React hooks are? Yeah, so, um, so, so React hooks were added in 16, 16.8. So it was like 
February 2019 when hooks were added to React. So there were like six years of React before hooks existed. Um, and prior to that, it was all class components. And there were even kind of two versions of that. There was like the ES6 class, like the class keyword. And before that, there was a create class function that you call. Um, so React has had a couple of these evolutions. So we originally had these class components and they're kind of, uh, they were long to write. I guess you'd, you'd have to, there's like a little bit of boilerplate around writing a render function and stuff. So at some point they added function components, which were like a lighter weight version of components where you just pretty much return the JSX, but then you couldn't have state. Um, so you had these, this, for a while there was this sort of two options, like function components are simpler to write and maybe a little bit faster even, but you can't have state in them. So you kind of need both. And so hooks solved that problem. Hooks let you put state and effects and stuff inside your function components. Um, so these are things like use state and use effect and use ref and um, they're, they're pretty much functions that you call uh, that will create kind of when you state, I guess, like stuff that persists between renders. Yeah. Yeah. I know when I first um, used like a use state in a function functional component and, and it just was so kind of bizarre to me um, thinking like, how is yeah. this working? Um, yeah. You have a really great section um, in your, in your course and your book about like how reacts work, how hooks work under the hood. Um, can you talk a little bit, just like give a little overview of that? Yeah. So I was, I was in the same boat when I heard about hooks, like I first tried them out and I was like, how does this work? Like, <laughs> it feels like it violates some laws of programming here, like programming <laughs> physics variables go away once you return from a function, like, and they're new every time, like you, you can't persist things unless they're global. So it was super strange. And I thought there was some like compiler trickery going on in the background or whatever. Um, but so, so no, so it turns out that, uh, Every time React renders your component, it's going to call that function, right? And so if you know that React, React is kind of orchestrating the whole thing. So React is going to call into your function, um, which means that before it does that, it can set up some stuff. It knows which instance is rendering, and it can set up like, I'm going to have an array of hooks. Um, and I think it's actually a linked list. But you think of it as a data structure that holds, holds hooks. So before it calls the component the first time, it, it creates this empty empty list and um, and then calls into your component. And if you then call out to use state or whatever, um, you're really calling back into React. And React kind of knows like, hey, I'm in the middle of a render and something that called use state, like I'll add its state to this list. Um, so there's kind of this concept of like, you know, the current, current component that's rendering and the current list of hooks. Um, so, it, so that's how it can remember things between calls. It's got this kind of extra backing state uh, for each, each component instance. Um, and it's the same for like effects and refs and stuff like that. So everything kind of goes into this, into this list. And that's why the call order matters. There's that rule of hooks where like you have to call them in the same order every time. And it's because of this, this like linked list kind of implementation where um, the hooks come in a certain order. So it knows like the first thing that gets called is a use state and it's going to return that state. And the second thing is like a different use state and it's going to return different state. Um, and if the order changes, then, then like it's just lost and like you'll, you'll get weird, weird results. Right. So because the hooks have to be called in a certain order every single time, like this one was called at number one spot, number two, and so on. Um, yeah. That's one of the reasons why you can't conditionally call a hook. Like if X happens, 
then call my hook in here because this could change up the order. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. Um, can you talk more about what custom hooks are and like, what are some of the use cases for custom hooks? Yeah. So um, custom hooks are basically fancy names for functions. Um, it's like you, so if you, you, if you take a chunk of code that calls some hooks, so like you've got maybe some use dates or use effects or whatever, and you cut that out and paste it into a function, and then you go back and replace the chunk of code with a call to that function you just made, like that, it's a refactoring. And it's also, that's like, that's a custom hook. So there's nothing really special about it. It's just like, I moved some hooks code into a function and we're calling it now. Um, the, the, the only kind of special um, requirement uh, is that custom hooks should start with the name of the function should start with the word use. So they kind of follow that convention. Um, and then like the linters can figure out you're calling them in the right way and whatever. That's the background of them, I guess. And so like a small example might be, say you want to register like an event handler that um, tells you every time the window resizes so you can keep something in sync or maybe do some like mobile responsiveness or something programmatically. So you could write a use effect and inside that use effect, you would call like add event listener to set up that like document that add event listener on the or window, I guess to get the resize event. And then in the cleanup, you'd, you'd remove the event listener. And now you've got this effect that does this little, you know, kind of monitors the window size. And so you could take that effect, like just kind of cut and paste it into a new function and call that function like use window size. And now you can re reuse it across multiple components. Um, and you also get the benefit of like, that it's just more readable, I think like, if you're reading through a component and you see an effect block, you've got to kind of stop and read it and figure out what it does. But if you see a call to use window size, you can be pretty sure like, oh, I know what that does. Like, I don't care how it does it. I just, I already know the name and the name's enough. Yeah, that makes sense. So it could be custom hooks that you can use across many different components. If you start to, maybe you're writing something and you realize this is a hook that you could reuse, not just here, but in a different component. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so I know in your course, you teach class components, and then you also go over hooks. For people who are newer to React, do you think there's one that they should focus on learning more than the other? Yeah, I think I think these days, hooks are the way to go because it's, it's really kind of the future of React. And it, I think it kind of was the future of React as soon as they came out in 2019. Um, <laughs> but there, there is still like a lot of older React code out there that uses classes that was kind of written pre-hooks or it's written you know, post hooks, but by people who were more comfortable with classes or whatever. Um, I think it's still valuable to know how both work, but I think for newcomers, you can probably like focus on hooks and then treat classes as like an as needed thing. Like you, you dive back in and learn those when you need them. Um, so that's why, yeah. So in, in the course I split out the class stuff into a separate module. So it's kind of like easy to dive into that if you need it, or just like skip it entirely if you never need it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like now I'm starting to think hooks just look more clean um, and are like less boilerplate anyway. So I almost yeah. feel like they're easier to start off with. Definitely. Um, so you have a post on React state management um, and you talk about, you know, state management libraries and how to choose one. I know it's um, a big post. I'll definitely link to it. But could you give like kind of an overview about like what state management is in React? Yeah. So state management I think it's probably one of the more contentious topics in the React world. Like, I think there's just there's just so many ways to do it. Um, 
And I don't think this is just a React thing. I think like state management is difficult in general. I've noticed this with the Swift world kind of getting into the Mac development stuff. Like it's just, it's a different angle on it, but it's the same problem. It's like, where, where do I put the data? How do I pass it around? And that's kind of what, what it's all about. Like state management is um, at like a high level. It's like, if you think of your app being in different states, like you've got like login page or you have an error or not or whatever, um, you've got to represent that somehow. And maybe that's local to single components. Maybe it's higher level. Maybe it's like, you know, the currently logged in user or something like that, like that the whole app needs to know about. Um, so there's just these questions of like, where do you put the data? And so React kind of, React really came in with like one strong, or, you know, some strong opinions around um, one-way data flow and like putting stuff into components. It said, here's how to architect your web app. Like put everything as a component, data flows down, events flow up and you can pass state down with props and you can pass, you know, event um, functions down with props too. But, you know, it turns out passing props manually down is kind of a pain. Um, the whole like prop drilling, prop threading problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's like problem number one that I think caused people to make some state management libraries and stuff. Um, and then there's also the that problem of global stuff, things like current user, current theme, current language, all these things that are like that you need across multiple pages in your app. Um, but you know, it might not even be every page. It might just be like multiple, but React doesn't have a great answer for that other than, you know, put it somewhere in the tree and pass the props down. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of painful, I guess, sometimes, uh, especially when your component tree gets kind of deep and like every app's component tree is kind of deep. Like none of them are like three <laughs> levels deep, you know, like as soon as it's doing anything real, um, it just gets difficult. So uh, so there's just a ton of different approaches to solve this problem. And um, so people made libraries like Redux was a really popular one and it's still really widely used. Um, and there's a few others like MobX and Zustins and Easy Peasy. And there's just, there's just like a bajillion state management libraries. Um, and they all kind of have different approaches. So I think a good way to 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 like decide which one you want to use is to try a few first. Like, I don't think, you know, despite, I'm sure there's blog posts out there being like the best state management library for 2021 or whatever. Uh, I would just ignore those things because there's really no best. It depends on what you like and depends on your, your team and your apps requirements and stuff like that. So try out a few of them, get a feel for like how they work and um, build some small projects and, and go from there. I think it's kind of the best way to go. Um, because yeah, because there's a ton of options. And I think, so to give like a, a specific example, like Redux, for instance, is all about like immutability and traceability and like every single action is traceable and everything's explicit. Um, and some people love that. And then some people really don't like that because it feels just like it's very boilerplate -y and you have to tell it everything you want it to do. So then there's a library like MobX where it's more like, you just make your variables observable and then you make your components observers and MobX is like, I'll just keep track of everything. You just mutate stuff however you want and I'll re-render the components that need to re-render. Um, and some people really like that. And some people also don't really like that because it's like too magical or something. So <laughs> there's just like, there's, there's, no, there's no pleasing everybody. I think there's just like <laughs> pros and cons to everything. Um, and I feel like the, the longer you do this, the more it just seems like, 
everything is a trade-off. <laughs> There's no perfect solution for anything. Um, so, yeah. yeah. What do you think? Some people kind of talk about uh, this new hook use reducer saying that, you know, you can just entirely use it instead of Redux. Um, that's at least one kind of argument. Yeah. yeah. That? <laughs> that's, that's a popular, that's a popular argument. As soon as, use, <laughs> as use reducer came out, it was like, oh yeah, you just like that plus use context and you don't need Redux anymore. Um, yeah. The trouble is you end up building your own Redux and it's worse. <laughs> it's, <laughs> oh, gosh. It's, it's slower and um, it ends up like there's lots of weird edge cases you've got to deal with. Uh, so yeah, I think like if you actually want Redux, just go use that. Actually, the Redux toolkit that came out a year or two ago now, I guess, is um, actually makes a lot of it nicer. It reduces the boilerplate a real lot. Interesting. Okay. I actually just started building um, an app and using like context and user user. I just started. Now I feel like I might be shooting, shooting myself in the foot possibly. It's, um, you know, it works great for like, I think it's, I think it's like the perfect solution. If you just have a few pieces of global state, like if you have like, you know, like I was talking about like current theme and user and whatever um, that's, that's great because it doesn't change very often. And um, you don't, have to be too careful about optimizing performance and stuff. But the where you can get into trouble, I think, is if you've got like this one massive object that has all of your different kinds of app state and that thing changes mm -hmm. a lot. You have to be a lot more careful about um, kind of like which components re-render when things change and uh, being sure to like memoize things and wrap things and use callback and um, just kind of a lot of manual work to get right. Okay. So maybe if you do have that bigger object, like you're saying, then maybe there would be a case for just switching to Redux instead of using something so similar. Yeah, yeah, I think, yep, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> um, I wanna go back to something you were talking about. Uh, you're talking about one-way data flow in React, which is just, I mean, you can probably explain this so much better than me, but I think the idea of just data flows from parent components to children. Um, but what do you think are like the benefits of React deciding to go with that architecture? Um, I think it's I think it's easier to reason about how your app works. Um, a lot of people say this, like that React is easier to reason about, and I think it's one of those weird little catchphrases that ends up kind of meaning nothing because you just hear it too many times. <laughs> um, but I think if you if you try um, compare it to something like building an app with jQuery or Angular, where like any any component or like any part of the page can change any other part of the page. And you've got to keep track of variables that change together by changing, you know, one at a time. And it's just, it gets really hard to manage. Um, and once it grows, like it can be really tough to figure out where bugs are and stuff like that um, versus the, the component-based approach where like every component kind of has its own little, its own little responsibilities and like it gets data from the parents and it renders it. And um, it's just much, much simpler to think about. Right, yeah, that makes sense because you know, okay, this component, maybe it has its own state or it's getting its data from its parent. And so it does feel easier to kind of trace, I guess, up. up yeah, the yeah it's kind of, that's kind of it, right? Like you, you get data from props or state or I guess context, which is kind of like props and that's, that's it. Like there's no other way. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's only a few places to look. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about learning um, and writing. Um, you talked about how, like often when you learn something, um, you actually write about it or kind of write about it while you're learning about it. Um, and I want to ask you, 
for people who want to do this, they want to write about what they're learning. How would you suggest they get started? And yeah, I know for me, I haven't really done this much. I feel much more comfortable writing about something once I feel like I know it really well and it's been a while. Um, But I think it would be helpful for me to start trying, you know, learn things and then try to write about them um, as I'm going. Um, But yeah, I'd love for you to talk more about that. Yeah. um, That's, yeah, that's interesting. Like, when do you write about it? I think it's kind of, it's easier to, to write about it, write about things after you like right after you've learned them. um, Because like the problem is fresh in your mind and like all of the dead ends you hit are fresh in your mind and stuff. And you can talk about those in a way that someone who's more experienced with the thing can't um, because you really, you really lose touch with kind of like what it was like to, to be a beginner and to not know how things work. Like some of the stuff, you, some of the stuff you, you could remember, but, but some like, I think over time, the, the more basic things like kind of go away, like trying to, remember how what it was like to not understand how variables worked or something like some base level things kind of eventually fade away and i think that's kind of true of to some degree of, of everything um where it's a lot easier to to put into words like how you, how you figured the thing out and um, how other people at your level can figure the thing out too um i think that's kind of the advantage of, of writing it earlier but i also totally get that under that feeling of like I want to make sure I understand this thing before I go and tell people what to do. (laughs) I don't want to just be like, I tried it once. I think I got it. Um, I, yeah, I think there's kind of a balance there. I do think that like during the writing process, it, it can help to, it can help to find those holes actually, like as you're writing it, as you're saying something confidently, a, a lot of times I'll be like writing something and be like, actually, I don't remember how this works or I'd never learned how I'm going to go look this up. Um, and so like that ends up, you know, kind of teaching me something, but also like makes the, makes the writing better, I guess. Um, so it can, it can help sort of like fill in those gaps where, where even if you're not like fully sure of the thing. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I know when I've tried to write about a few topics and then um, or even like writing about it or in an interview where someone says, what is this? And you start to describe it or you start to write it down and you realize like, do I actually really understand this thing? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's, it's tough, especially when, when, uh, when it's kind of like a high level. Yeah. I don't know. High level things. Like I've had people ask me before, like, what is state? And like, my mind just wasn't in react mode at the time. And I was like, that's a, <laughs> great question let me like i mean i've written all these posts about react and stuff and like i should have this but like i it's it's too high level or something <laughs> like something about it is like i i don't know it's this is a very abstract concept um and yeah uh i think that's interviews are really bad for that like people like people will ask sort of like trivia questions phrased in a way that they want the specific answer and you're like I don't, I like, I haven't thought about the JavaScript prototype chain in years. Like, what, why are you asking me? I don't know. This doesn't really matter. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's so true. Stuff like that is, is tough. I feel like the question of what is state, I feel like I'm just like, it's like, wow, my, it's on my mind. That's a deeper question. Like, what is state? <laughs> right, oh, I just right. think on that. Like, uh, yeah, there's like multiple levels to that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, that's definitely helpful. Just working on, after you learn it, um, try writing it down, try explaining it. Um, and I also like that your course is really project-based too, because that's my pet peeve with a lot of courses where there's like 
surprisingly few courses have like a bunch of projects in them. It's more of just like, okay, here's this thing. And you have no idea like how to go kind of apply it necessarily. Um, so I like that you have like your course is very project-based because then I can, um, like when I was taking it, I kind of pause and then I'll try to like build something else on the little app we made, um, which is definitely helpful just getting in there and playing with the code immediately. Yeah, that's awesome. That that feels like kind of how I intended people to go through it. I think like pausing and playing around with stuff that I didn't tell you to like <laughs> is, is sort of the point. Like uh, go off go off the rails a bit and and play around with it because I think that's that's where the learning happens. Otherwise, I think it's kind of too easy to just follow directions and not really understand how a thing works. Even if you type in the same stuff, somehow if you if you do it yourself um, and like add your own little tiny component to the page or something, something, there's something that clicks there. It's like, oh, I did this myself. Yeah. And, yeah, and I know you talked confidence about it. And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm just going to say it like it builds confidence and also kind of uh, wires the knowledge in better. Yeah, it does. Because um, almost every video, I think there's just so many little apps in your course you build. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate that because I've taken courses before um, where I pause and then I go open my text editor and I just have no idea what to do, especially when I was a beginner. I'm like, yeah. well, I just learned all these things in this 10 hour course. And then I go open my own text editor and I'm like, I have learned nothing. I feel like, um, so I love that yeah. you have so many little apps because I think anyone taking the course who's interested in taking it, they can, you immediately dive in with a small app and you can kind of pause and keep building right there. You don't have to, I think there's not that hard switch between just a tutorial and then trying to actually go build something. There's also some aspect of like the format there, like video versus written, which is I'm, I'm sort of torn on as a, as a teacher. Like I, I think I learn better from books um, because it's so natural to pause. Like there's no pause button. You just kind of stop and try it. Um, whereas videos, like the, the natural thing is to just keep playing. Um, so I think that that is a benefit of like the, you know, my pure react course and also like, like egghead courses, the, the, the style of like short lessons that kind of make you stop and you can go and try the thing. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting because video is so much, it feels like you're learning so much. Like you can just watch a video and be like, oh, I get it. Um, but then when you go and do it yourself, like it's just, the knowledge is gone. And it's just like a universal experience for people watching video courses. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that your course, like you said, it was first a book and like the book is still available. Um, and I have the book obviously too, because yeah, I do like sometimes just maybe going and taking notes or reading a little bit instead of watching a video too. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your project ReCut. It's a Mac app um, that automatically edits your videos by cutting out the silence. I haven't tried it yet, but I really want to now just thinking of the podcast and things like that. <laughs> yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about the project? Sure. Um, so this is like a totally different, uh, totally different track, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally different world from web development. So this, it's actually a, it's a native app written in Swift um, for the Mac. Uh, it's, it's Mac only right now, but it's really been interesting learning, uh, just like learning Swift and Mac developments and stuff. And it's, it's like being a beginner all over again. Like <laughs> it's like so many things where I'm just taking web development knowledge for granted. And it's like, oh, it doesn't work the same way at all in Swift. Um, so the the story behind the app really was that uh, I made recuts so that I could edit screencasts faster. Um, so having done, you know, courses for videos for Egghead and then like Pure React and some other courses, 
the editing was always like my least favorite part of the process. Like I'd, <laughs> I'd record the thing and then the editing would just take forever. Like I would, I would spend like hours, like seriously hours to make like a three minute video, <laughs> especially in the beginning. Um, I just like hit record, record a ton of bad takes. I'd have like, you know, an hour of video and it would take me another you know, two hours to edit it down. And it's just terrible. Um, so I got, <laughs> I got faster at it with practice and like learning some shortcuts and stuff, but it's still, uh, it was still like, you know, maybe an hour of recording and editing to get a three minute video. <laughs> um, so what recut does is, is uh, it's, it's pretty much kind of built for like that screencasting workflow where you uh, like the egghead style workflow really, where you, you sort of like try to get like one little tiny perfect take. So like you say one sentence and type it out and you just keep doing it until you get it right leaving pauses in between and then kind of move on to the next one. And so if you manage to do that, like you end up with a recording that's just like a bunch of takes, good and bad, punctuated by silence. And so your editing is just like to go through and delete the silent parts and the bad takes. So Recut finds the silence and deletes them and just chops it up into clips. Um, and you can take those, uh, you can take the cut list, like just the clips and pull them out into ScreenFlow or Final Cut or DaVinci Resolve or whatever, like a real editor um, to do your like final tweaking and stuff. Um, and I'm trying to like make Recut a bit better. So like adding, adding features to it and stuff, like uh, I recently added the ability to like delete clips from inside Recut so you can go through and delete, delete bad takes um, before you do the export and stuff. But it definitely saves a ton of time. Um, and so, yeah, I love uh, that idea. I spend so much time like editing the podcast and there are definitely so many different little silences that I just end up waiting for. Like it probably takes, um, like I've, I'm starting to like outsource it now because like you said, it takes so much time um, that it ends up taking, you know, it's like a one hour thing. And then it ends up taking like six hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, just, it's, it's nuts how long editing takes. Yeah. Really, really slow. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so so it's been it's been fun to work on, and like uh, people seem to enjoy it a lot. Um, I think the main problem right now is that nobody really knows it exists. There's like <laughs> a few a few big YouTubers have picked it up and said it's saved them a ton of time, and um, so that's been like really satisfying to like just gratifying, I guess, to to feel like uh, I've made this app that's saving people time. It's, it's great, um, but really the issue is is now kind of like getting the word out. So that's a whole other, like a whole other podcast on yeah. how to market software. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Like building it one thing and then marketing it this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. So sort of have these two things going in parallel now, try to keep the, you know, do the react stuff and, um, and also the recut stuff and like content marketing for that. And so it's like, yeah, kind of like two parallel businesses. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I definitely need to check it out now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for your time, Dave. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Madison. This is fun. For anyone who wants to learn more about you, where can they go to find you and follow you? Um, so I'm on Twitter at Decedia, uh, not super active there, but there's, there's that. Um, my, uh, my blog is at davesedia.com for the react and web dev stuff, uh, Pure React, the courses at purereact.com and recut is getrecut.com. So if you do any screencasts or videos, you can check that out. Awesome. Thank you.